the point of a campaign isn't to raise the most money and it isn't even to win the campaign. The point is to advance values in which you believe. And at some point, those values have to matter. And one of those values really needs to be honesty and integrity. And if you're basically tricking people into giving you money, you're undermining a set of values on which we all rely to make politics work. I'm Eric Wilson, managing partner of Startup Caucus, an investment fund and incubator for Republican campaign technology. Welcome to the Business of Politics podcast. On this show, we bring you into conversation with the entrepreneurs who build best-in-class political businesses, the funders who provide the capital, and the operatives who put it all together to win campaigns. Our guest today is Peter Loge, the director of the Project on Ethics in Political Communication at the George Washington University. Before moving to academia, Peter spent more than 25 years working as a Capitol Hill and White House staffer, lobbyist, and consultant. Now he encourages students academics, and practitioners to consider what, if any, ethical obligation political communication professionals have and to whom or what they have it. I hope you enjoy our discussion about ethics in professional politics today. Peter, when we mention ethics, it seems a little abstract or lofty. Give our listeners an example of an ethical challenge that a political professional might face. You know, you're absolutely right. The other response I get when I say I talk about ethics is not just that it's lofty, but it's also oxymoronic in politics. And it can right. feel very abstract and very removed from the day-to-day of, of how you get people elected and what you do be- between elections. I think as operatives, we can think about ethics in three very specific uh, buckets or categories. One is for whom you work. The second is what you do when you work for them. And the third is what you do between campaigns. The first is for whom do you work? Right? Are there bright lines? Um, I absolutely will will not work for somebody who disagrees with me on abortion or immigration or guns or something like that. Then what are the gray areas and how do you navigate those? If you disagree with somebody on immigration, but it's not a priority for them, is it okay to work for them? And these don't seem like ethical choices, but but fundamentally they are because you when you are standing up to speak for somebody or helping out somebody else stand up to speak, you need to make sure you're standing on, on solid rock rather than, rather than on shifting sand. And that's an ethical decision. When you go to work for a candidate, the ethical choices are, are endless and often unseen. Uh, you can look at things like opposition research, right, which all good campaigns do, both on their own candidate and on their opponent. If, you're, if your opposition research on your opponent turns up that uh, somebody is a recovering alcoholic or recovering drug addict, do you bring that up? The first response would be, of course not. That's their, their personal life. These are hard human traumas. Everybody's going through them. It's out of bounds. Okay. But what if your opponent says anybody with a drug problem should immediately go to jail? Now is it appropriate because they're, they're hypocritical? Right. So what do you, what are those? What if you learn in oppo research something about your own candidate? What if you learn the candidate you're working for um, in the past as part of an organization with which you profoundly disagree or has private views they don't tell the public that, that are, uh, you know, very off from what you believe in and what you do? What do you say in ads? Um, whose pictures do you use? Uh, whose money do you take? Whose endorsements do you take or, or reject? Right? Most endorsements come in and you're grateful because it's however many more votes. But what if you get an endorsement from an organization that runs counter to your core values? You say, you know what? No, thanks. We'd rather not have your votes. Right? These are all ethical decisions you face. And the one that a lot of operatives don't think about between cycles is uh, who do you work for when you're not working for a candidate? 
right? A candidate is pretty straightforward. There's a person, maybe it's a senior campaign staff you, you agree with or disagree with. But what if you work for a consulting firm? What if you work for an advocacy group, right? How many of their positions do you have to agree with? On the Democratic side of the aisle, there's a piece written in uh, several years ago now from a Democratic operative who'd worked on a number of high-profile campaigns who said that Democrats, including herself, who work for consulting firms whose clients are major industries, should stop working for those industries because those industries were lobbying for things that ran afoul of Democratic values. Right. If you're on a Republican operative, do you go work for a bipartisan consulting firm in between and you work for an organization that's lobbying for positions with which you disagree on immigration? Right. What if you agree with the U.S. Chamber on eight out of 10 issues, but the remaining two are really important? Who do you work for? And if you say, look, I'll work for consulting firm A, but I will not work on clients one, two and three. Nevertheless, you're helping those clients succeed. You're helping the firm succeed and the clients succeed. Should, can you say, look, I'll work for this client, right? I'll work in the Amazon account or the Microsoft or US Chamber account, but I won't work on immigration or I won't work on um, you know, taxes or whatever it happens to be. Right. And the success is all fungible, right? The success yeah. is fungible. So these are the ethical decisions you have to face that, that operatives face every day when, when selecting for whom to work what they do during a campaign, and really importantly, what you do between between cycles. Yeah, that's a that's a really helpful framework to think about it, uh, and and it really does often start with who are you working for. You know, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got as a young political operative is in order to decide who you're going to go work for on a campaign, you need to first determine are they qualified. Would they do a good job in the office? Not just can they pay your bills? Um, are they going to make sure that that things go well? But it, it does start at the top, most as most questions of ethics do. So I was really lucky, and the first member of Congress for whom I worked had had a pretty high ethical bar. Um, disturbingly, at one point, actually, I wanted a lobbyist to give me tickets to something, and the boss said, "No, you have to pay for it." And when you're there, you can't be treated well. It was very distressing. <laughs> Uh, but but he 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 sort of set a tone, and I thought, oh, this is how politics is is supposed to be. We played rough and tumble, you know. We were trying to be clever, and we were competitive. It wasn't a hey, let's have kumbaya here. It was pretty serious stuff. But it was always very clear. The the the, the congressman made it clear that it was a privilege to work on politics, and there's something at stake beyond the next election or the next piece of legislation, and and that's what we had to be loyal to, to that greater idea. And that, I think, set me up for the rest of my career because that was my baseline. Right. Your introduction to an industry or, or politics can often sort of color uh, how you see situations down the road. And, and so I think for a lot of people, you kind of touched on this, the idea of ethics and politics, um, <laughs> those words don't necessarily go together. And so while there are notable cases of corruption that we could all recall, and certainly a long history and I'd say proud tradition of being really cutthroat and competitive in politics. Talk a little bit about why it's important that we consider the ethical implications of what we do as political professionals. You know, that's a, that's a good question. I think there are a couple of reasons we, we have to pay attention to it. And if you talk to political professionals, we, we, you and I talked to our friends, we had these conversations. Part of the answer is in politics, all you have is your reputation or your name. Right. If, if somebody feels like they can't trust you, they're not going to hire you. And at some point, it'll come back to bite you in the butt. Right. And every, we've all seen examples of this politicians who either get caught early or get caught late and it always ends badly or operatives who are bright, shining stars until it turns out. So 
don't run the risk that something's going to come back to bite you. And that's a good rule of thumb. But more importantly for me is is an understanding that there's much more at stake than the next election or the next piece of legislation or whatever it is you happen to be working on. All of this got involved in politics because we believe in something. Right. If you're getting into politics to get rich and famous, please go into some other field. There are far <laughs> more efficient ways. There are people who right. get rich and famous in politics. There are many more people who get rich and famous doing many other things than, than in politics. You get involved in politics because you believe in an idea or an ideal of an American promise. Right? You, you believe that ours can be a more perfect union if. You believe these things. And it's easy to lose that because you get on a, on a race and, oh my gosh, you got to beat this guy. And now we're in office. Now we've got to advance this legislation. And you get caught in the game. Right. And it's easy to let go of what got you here. It's easy to forget that you're not in it for this election, that you're not in it because you got to pay rent or pay a student loan. You're not in it to be in roll call or politico. You got into politics because you believe in something fundamental. Right. You believe in the sanctity of our democracy. You believe in that. And if we, who have the privilege to make a living working in politics, do not hold fast to that belief, then democracy is toast. We've, we've turned it over to the lowest common denominator hack who's going to move from this campaign to selling Vegematics to, you know, pushing reverse mortgages on late night TV back to mm-hmm. politics. Right. We have to be better than that because politics is a privilege that demands us to be better than that. So, Peter... It's taken me a long time to to gain this perspective, but you know, throughout my career, I've I've seen people or behaviors, and I said, oh, you know, that's 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 questionable or unethical. But it, what I what I have realized over time is no one thinks, or certainly very few people think that they're doing anything wrong, right? You just don't encounter that many psychopaths in the wild. <laughs> um, so, give us some practical ways that uh, professionals can practice better ethics in their work. Because I, I agree with you. I think most people get into this because they um, have some higher you know, moral or ethical calling because they want to get engaged in the practice of politics. But they get lost along the way or understand how the business is done in a, in a way that isn't ideal. What are some of the, the, the ways that we can be better at this and, and maybe cure some of our blind spots? Yeah, that's that's really the hard part, right? Um, very few people get into politics because they like the corruption. The corruption may be here, but nobody thinks I want to. I lead a corrupt life. What are my options right. here? And and it's also true that nobody's ever offered me a bag of cash, right? Nobody. I spent part of I spent for one job. I spent time flying around the country with a senior U.S. government official, and at no point did did an industry executive pull me aside and say, you know, thanks so much for coming out. Uh, really like what you have to say. You know, we've got a thing happening with your agency. I'd love you to take a second look. By the way, is that, is that your Gucci bag of cash you accidentally left in the corner? <laughs> if that that's had a pretty happened, bright line. That's a pretty bright line. Like, don't take right. the, And if they had, I'm not sure I'd be doing this podcast with you now. I'd be, be in the Caymans. Mostly, though, it's the little decision, right? Well, this isn't quite right, but. Well, we can fix it on Monday. Well, I'm not going to pick a fight with the boss on this one. And you've got rent to pay. You've got bills. You've got a family, student loans or whatever. And you end up drowning by degrees. I think there, there are a couple of things that, that I do and that I encourage my students and, and others to do. One is, you know, take a walk or go to church or temple or whatever it is you do and really reflect on why it is you, you're engaged in politics. What is this? grounding thing? You know, is it the gospel of Paul? Is it the Torah? Is it 
what is it? Write it and write that down. Right? Put it on a post-it note or a three by five card or something. And then write down a bit of a, okay, I can't reflect on this in the heat of the moment in every single campaign. No one has that kind of time. But what's the shorthand for it? Right? Is it your what would Jesus do? wristband back when that was mm-hmm. a thing? Or is it a, um, imagine, I talked to one operative who shared a story with my students about some challenges she faced. And for her now, it's an imagined uh, conversation with her late grandfather. If I asked my grandpa what to do, what would he say? Uh, for me, it's actually the children's book, uh, The Phantom Tollbooth, and about a boy named Milo. And it's a reminder to me to, to have adventures. I actually had my own firm for a while called Milo Public Affairs to remind myself every day to be like Milo. Work as hard as you can, do the best you can, do what you think is the right thing to do and just keep going. And, and write that down and put that on a post-it note on your computer. The other thing I think you can do as an operative is make sure early in a campaign, do this before the campaign starts, right? The time to think about your ethical decisions, whose money you will and won't take, whose endorsements you will and won't take, the positions you will and won't stand for, is not two weeks out when you're within the margin of error, right? That bad decisions get made then. The time is when you're assembling the campaign team. You start with the candidate. Look, what are your bright lines? Let's write these down. Let's write down a rules of the road. Pete Buttigieg did this, and then, then Biden later did, and other campaigns have as well. And you put them on posters, and you put them in the office. And people are going to violate him, and it gets loose, and you know whatever. But you're sort of on record saying, these are the things that we believe in, and this is how we're going to operate. Right? And just keep it in front of you. Right. right? It's like those goofy inspirational posters. But you know what? It can work. You're listening to the Business of Politics show. I'm speaking with Peter Loge, who runs the Project on Ethics and Political Communication at the George Washington University here in Washington, D.C. Peter, I want to drill down into something specific that's been in the news lately, and it, it's the online fundraising tactics like claims about matching artificial deadlines and, and pre-checked recurring donations. For for those who are steeped in the business of politics, it's no secret that these tactics have uh, been commonly used by both political parties. Explain for our listeners why this issue has come to the forefront now when it's been going on for years. Uh, that's that's another another good question. And as we've been having this conversation, I assume my my email inbox is filling up with emails saying that the world is about to come to an end unless you send your two dollars right now with a nine hundred percent match. It seems like um, we would have a better system for for protecting the world than than two dollar donations. My two dollars, right? Yeah. Really, it comes down to that, huh? Who knew I had that kind of power? I, I think that a couple of things are happening at once. Uh, one is, you know, it, it works, right? The everybody, one of the things about, about online politics that's different than, than offline politics is you know exactly what works when and how it works because you can measure everything in real time. You're doing A B testing on everything, so you know what works. The second is you got to break through the clutter, right? Nobody ever, nobody ever wrote a check based on, based on an appeal that began with, you know, things are okay, but they could probably be better. My opponent's not a bad person. I just think that, you know, maybe I'd be a bit better at it. So if you get a chance, chip in right. 10 bucks. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's got to be the house is on fire, the house is on fire, the house is on fire. The problem is the baseline, like the house is on fire. Oh, now I got to get your attention. Okay, the neighborhood's on fire. Oh, the neighborhood, only the neighborhood? Because I got to, you know, you just, it, 
you have to ratchet it up to get to get the attention. You have to have the the hooks and the gizmos, the nine hundred percent match, or the seventy percent match, or the you know whatever it will be. And and a couple of problems with that. One is it's diminishing returns; it just becomes noise. Uh, the other is if the world doesn't in fact come to an end because my two dollars weren't sent in, maybe I don't believe the next email, mm-hmm. or maybe I distrust politics in general. Right? It increases my level of cynicism. It it's a politics of of fear rather than a politics of hope. And fear can be a great motivator as far back as as authors as far back as Aristotle noted that, but. You know, democracy relies on hope, right? We believe that we can get better together rather than just on fear, which is you have to hunker in and protect ourselves from the from the hordes. The the, the piece that I find uh, that's gotten the most attention lately is uh, thanks to some research done by Shane Goldmacher at the New York Times and others on automatic recurring donations. Uh, the Democrats did this for a while. They stopped. Uh, the Trump campaign got in trouble for doing it. I think most Republican organizations have now stopped. But it was the, if you want to make this $10 one time or monthly, and into your credit card, it just, just happened automatically. Organizations do this all the time. Public Radio, World Wildlife Fund, everybody does this. And the question is, do you check, do you check the box to donate every month or do you uncheck the box if you don't want to donate every month? Behavioral economics tells us if you want people to do something, tell them to uncheck the box to opt right. out. It's a. It's also a dark pattern, you know. That's we we work with a lot of companies on the product and software side, and that is the opposite oh, yeah. behavior of what you would you would expect to have happen. And people do this. They find research has been done on on driver's licenses and organ donation. Probably, right. right? Do you check here if you'd like your organs to be donated in the case something? really bad happens or check if you don't want them to be it unsurprisingly people who have to check the box have lower rates of, of acceptance same for retirement funds same for, like there's a good reason there are social benefits to opting in and opting out there are certainly commercial benefits to opting in and opting out but i think in politics yeah it makes sense like you raised a ton of money but again the point of a campaign isn't to raise them the most money and it isn't even to win the campaign the point is to advance values in which you believe, and at some point, those values have to matter. And one of those values really needs to be honesty and integrity. And if you're basically tricking people into giving you money, you're undermining a set of values on which we all rely to make politics work. You're increasing cynicism and distrust in a field in which we need to be building trust and decreasing cynicism. Got it. So it's sort of like we polluted this lake this last year. And as a result, our quarterly earnings were amazing. And so our stock price jumped up. But over the long term, our employees are going to live in an unlivable environment, right? Yeah, I think that's sort of a, an analogy. Peter, I, I, you know, part of my, my, my thought on this is that we are in the behavior modification business. And some of these tactics are more aggressive and defective than others. And the the question really comes down to, and I tend to agree that there are some dark patterns that are used unjustly, right? To to sort of confuse people and certainly make uh, decisions for them. But at the same time, it does feel to me like we are in this cultural shift and you're seeing it on the commercial side with Robinhood and meme stocks and things like that, where the gatekeepers are starting to get nervous that average people have the ability to contribute to campaigns, for example, right? But, you know, previously you needed to be a member of a party and you needed to be invited to this fundraiser and you needed to know the right people. So, you know, I, I think just to, to sort of defend my compatriots in the, <laughs> the political practitioner space is we're trying to figure this out. On one hand, the donors and the, the voters are having to learn themselves, right? Because they're being exposed to more 
opportunities to give politically than they have in the past. I'll admit I've worked uh, on projects where we've used those tactics and and I haven't spoken up about it because they are effective. And the other side, and, and definitely our allies who are also, you know, competing with for fundraising, don't have any problems. So how, how would you respond to someone who's listening to this conversation right now? And they say, well, there's nothing illegal about these fundraising tactics. So what's the big deal? Yeah. So I think there are three parts to that. The I want to come to the legality last. And I think one is on the defense of small dollar donors and more people being engaged. And I think more small dollar donors are great. I think it's a way to get have a literally put it, have a stake in the process. And you know, small dollar donors then if you're a small dollar donor, you're more likely to put a sign in your yard and you're more likely to go out and vote. And you you give rise to unexpected candidates, which you know if you're an establishment person is terrifying, but <laughs> kind of makes democracy kind of cool. You know, and I think that's that's fantastic. And that's not new with with the internet. Right. Some of us are old enough to remember the 1992 presidential campaign when Jerry Brown was running the primaries and he had a 1-800 number. You call 1-800, I don't know, Jerry Brown or whatever it was. And, and he would never, wouldn't take a donation over a hundred dollars and all of that. Right. So we've been doing this. Just, you know, it allows us to do it more effectively and more efficiently. I think the challenge for me comes in and, and be aggressive and, 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 and say, well, a lot is at stake because that's the other thing about politics is it matters. A lot is at stake. If you think about, abortion or immigration or taxes or individual rights or education. Like, of course, you're going to raise an alarm. You ought, you have to. I think a good test for me is if my least internet savvy or politically savvy relative got this email, would they be tricked? Mm-hmm. If so, I need to rework the email. Like if their blood's boiling and they're angry and they're sort of rage donating and we've all done the rage donating <laughs> during campaigns. Yeah. Well, maybe they probably shouldn't have rage donated. Thanks for the hundred bucks, grandma. But don't, don't make grandma come back and go, wait, hang on. I did what now? The, and I think the, which gets into the legality question, right? I think the laws can be stronger. The FEC can be a bit more toothful. We can argue for days about what that could be. But, but just because something is legal doesn't mean you should do it. Right. I lived down the block from an elementary school and, and I could legally, I think, dress in a bunny suit, stand across the street from the school yelling, Santa Claus is dead. That seems like a terrible thing to do. Right. So, again, you got into politics not to see what you could get away with. Right. But to do good. Find that, do that, live that. And if you can't make the best, most compelling case the best way you can, then you know maybe like find something else to do because your your gifts are elsewhere or maybe you're wrong, you know. And and the last piece I would weigh in here is that sometimes the stakes feel so high. Well, the other side is doing it, so we have to too. Then the other side looks and goes, well, they're doing it, so we have to too, and it becomes this awful race to the bottom, mm-hmm. right? And 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 it's hard to get out of that. But all my Republican friends and all my Democratic friends complain that the other side is bringing a a knife to a gunfight. You know, it's hard to find things that are compelling and interesting and raise money and turn out votes. But that's why they pay you. If we're easy, <laughs> anybody could do it. Right, right. Right. Politics and, is a business. Earn the money. And so, Peter, I'm so glad that this program exists for people who may not be working in, in Washington, D.C. Students from George Washington University are everywhere. They're reporters. They're elected officials. Their appointed officials, their operatives, and so having this this program and, and digging down into this, I think, is really important. The the one thing I would 
again, sort of stand up for, for my, my <laughs> industry, which I know was also your industry at, at I still point. have, I still have clients. So um, yes, it is that, you know, and, and John Boehner always said a, a leader without any followers is just a guy taking a walk. And so I, I think I would put some of the onus back on voters. If you want your politicians to be better, if you want them to be more ethical and honest, then put a cost for not doing that, right? And 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 getting more civically engaged, I think, is the key. You know, if those tactics stop working, we won't use them. So I, again, I don't. I, I think that there is still responsibility to be be ethical, um, but I, I would. Um, yeah, I was like I was, to increase the quality of our our voters as well. No, I would too, and also journalism, right? I was never right. hired to run a campaign because I ran a pretty campaign, right? I get hired to run mostly issue campaigns these days because I'm because I win, right? But and I, there's an anecdote. I, I was running a congressional campaign in the '90s, and we were trying to run it on on issues, and it was a crowded media landscape, really really crowded media market, and we're getting no traction at all on the issues. Our opponent opened a campaign headquarters in a strip mall next to a hair salon that a lot of seniors went to. And the seniors complained that all the parking spots were filled by campaign volunteers <laughs> and they had to walk to the and that's what the paper covered. Jeez. And I thought, okay, that's it, we're done. I will now find every goofy, ridiculous thing we can to make fun of our opponent, who I think was a reasonable, decent guy, whose campaign manager and I talked weekly just to like, you said this crazy thing. Are you sure? No, that wasn't me. That was such and so. But yeah, like, uh, be, yeah, be better. We've all got to be better. And we've all got to remember that it's not about, politics aren't about the D or the R on your jersey. They're not about the sticker on your car. They're not about no, the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. They're about a set of shared American ideals to which we all need to work. And we work towards them the best way of robust, honest, fair debate. You vote on the outcome of the debate. You go, yep, I don't like how that vote came out. We're going to roll with this for now. Let's have another debate. But we have to do, we have to be better as voters. We have to be better as journalists. And I think those of us who are privileged to make a living participating in this grand American experiment also have to be better. Well, Peter, I am so glad you joined us today. This has really been a fascinating conversation and a good reminder that there are things bigger than us that are at stake in these campaigns and advocacy efforts. You can visit the Ethics in Political Communication project at ethicsinpoliticalcommunication.org to learn more. And that's linked in the show notes as well. Remember to subscribe to the Business of Politics show wherever you listen to podcasts and This isn't a trick, but I would ask that you share this episode with a friend if it made you smarter or made you think about how you conduct yourself professionally. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. 